In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Perhaps you have had the concept of God at one point in your life, or maybe even now, that a lot of people have. And that that's he's a grouchy God who is trying to take away from us all our fun. He has rules and expectations for us. And when people don't keep in line with what he wants, he gets upset. And then you're going to pay for it. And that, so he establishes these rules because, and it's misery to people. Why would you, Christian, serve and give your life to this God and do these rules and take away your fun? Now, I hope that you don't have that view of God, but it's a very common understanding of God. That he's just upset with the whole human race. Um, but hear how the Bible talks about God and his law. First of all, we had finished just a few weeks ago praying every Sunday. So we spent seven weeks praying through Psalm 119, in which all 176 verses praise God's law as being good for us, as expanding our lives, a huge prayer of thanksgiving. Every year after Pentecost, we pray through that psalm for the next seven Sundays. I know it sounds like, oh my gosh, we're in Psalm 119 again, but no, it's washing and affirming our hearts because our hearts lie to us. Like we receive lies and we're told all the time that God's law is limiting us. Do your own thing. But no, we have been having to train ourselves through prayer, through the Psalms, that God's word is good for us. His law actually leads us to greater liberty in life. And then you consider Paul in Romans chapter 6. He told us that, and this is 6 verse 20, that you were once slaves to sin. You were once slaves to sin. But what has happened? Christ has come and he has liberated us from slave, our slavery to sin. By forgiving our sin, he set you free. Uh, think more um, directly, John chapter 8, which is what one of our sisters prayed earlier uh, from John chapter 8, when Jesus said to the Jewish leaders who are criticizing him, um, in John 8 verse 34, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. It's the son who remains forever. So, if the son, referring to himself, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Okay. And then James, writing, says, he refers to the Old Testament, which was the only Bible that the early church had, he refers to the Old Testament as the perfect law of liberty. Why does God give us his law? He gives us his law for our liberty. Because when we sin, we become slaves and captives to sin. And we may think that we're free. Whoa, I do whatever I want. I don't have to live like those religious folk over there. But actually, what, there's a great lie of the devil, is that when we are living sin, we are told, oh, I get to do whatever I want. 
when in reality, sin is telling you what to do every time. Now, I know that people brush this off because it's an extreme example, but all this is is showing us the course of sin to its extremity is when you look at addicts. They are not free. And all sin works in that same way. It's just more manifest when you've been living in sin longer than other people. God's law has gotten a bad rap because we have often read the New Testament as if it was God's law demanding things of us and now his grace, which demands nothing of us. Sometimes it's oversimplified in this way. What we need to understand is that God's law has always been an instrument of good for our liberty and our thriving. It's we in the West, uh, mostly like more modern times, because as we've developed these sophisticated court systems, we know the judge comes out and he opens the law and it's condemnation to those that don't keep it. But that's not how God's law works. And it's almost unfortunate that we continue to use the word law to describe his word and his commands. Because if you're reading uh, in the Hebrew, the word for law is Torah, and it actually means instruction. It means the way. It's, it's a word that comes from, it's the root that describes the point of a spear. Where should we go? What's the mark? How do we hit the mark? The Torah directs us that way. It's instruction for life. It's the map. That's what we mean when we say God's law, his commands, his word. It's good. Humanity had fallen into terrible corruption when humanity sold themselves to the devil when Adam and Eve sinned against God. And we were so far gone in sin that God chooses a people out of all the nations and gives to this people, Israel, his law. Why? To help slow down the corruption happening all over the world. And so Israel would become an example of what the world could look like if freed from sin. Now, they obviously didn't do it very perfectly, and they had their consequences for that. But this is what Jesus wanted, or this is, excuse me, this is what God wanted to do, is show the world that Israel, a nice place to live. (laughs) Despite all the chaos around you, this is a nice place to live. But tonight, we come to an interesting passage because it makes us question what what is the purpose of all that and what is Jesus doing? What does this mean for us as Christians? What is our relationship to God's law, especially considering grace and what Jesus came to do? So what we just need to, what we need to realize, brothers and sisters, is that as we conform our lives to God's instruction, we are more free than we were beforehand. But the lie of the enemy is that freedom is permission to sin. Most of humanity sees freedom as permission to do whatever you want, permission to sin. The Bible says, no, God's law, his instruction is freedom from sin. So let's now enter with this in mind that the law of God is liberty. So um, we had just studied the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. It begins um, in verse 3. And took us all the way through verse 10. Uh, These are the eight virtues of Christ-likeness. This is what Jesus is calling us to become. And you may remember, blessed is not, you will get a reward if you do these things. 
These blesseds are saying, this is the good life if you become these things. If you're poor in spirit, you have found blessing by being poor in spirit. If you are meek, you have found the blessed life by being meek. This is how you thrive as a human. This is how God made us to be. So he gives us those beatitudes. The result of these is, this was last week, persecution. Yes, people will hate Christ in you. But we will also be salt and we will be light. Now, what that means, you can go listen to last week's message. Now we come, so that was all the introduction to Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Now we come to his, what we would say today is his thesis statement. This is the big proposition, the big idea that he wants to lead us into. So, uh, we're going to go through verse 17 through 20 right now. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, by that, he's referring to the five, first five books of the Bible and the rest of the Old Testament. So law and prophets was just a phrase he's using for, don't think that I came to abolish everything God commanded. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. He's talking about little strokes in the writing of God's word. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, what's this therefore mean? Jesus just said, hey, I haven't come to destroy the law. That's not my mission. Now, this is important, and I think Matthew is recording this very clearly for us because in the early church, what were Christians accused of? Destroying the law. What was Stephen stoned for? This man is blasphemed against Moses and the Holy Temple. But the Acts tells us that these were false witnesses. That's not actually what the church was teaching. Um, Paul answered accusers by saying, look, some will say that, oh, well, there's grace and let's just sin all the more so that grace may abound. And Paul's like, absolutely not. God still has an instruction for us. Now, when Paul talks about the law, he is usually referring to the traditions that were added to the law. That's usually what he's attacking. It's not God's commands. He's attacking the system of Judaism, which has been made to surround the commands of God. Jesus is saying, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. Now, what do we mean by fulfill? Sometimes, I think often, we tend to read that word fulfill as, he came, he obeyed the law, and now it's gone! Because Jesus did it, he fulfilled it, so now there's no point to it. But wait, don't forget what he just said. I didn't come to abolish it, but on the contrary, to fulfill it. In other words, he's saying, I have come to bring the law and to make it more than what you know it as. So, the first law of God was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were given a very simple, straightforward law. Commune with me, eat from any tree in the garden... I added the commune because it's the idea, the understood idea. Be with me. Eat from any tree in the garden. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge. 
That was the first law. It was broken. Then he gave to Israel the law from Mount Sinai, right? For starting with the Ten Commandments. And by the way, how did the Ten Commandments start? Do you know this? Do you remember this? Very important. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the house of slavery. You shall love the Lord, right? He goes into now the, um, you shall have no other idols, excuse me, um, no gods before me. Whatever, you know, you know the Ten Commandments. Um, and I do too, trust me. <laughs> um, he begins, though, with that prelude. I was doing the summary of the, the, of the law. You shall love the Lord your God by your heart, soul, and mind. Um, but he starts with that preface of remember where you came from just like jesus is saying in the in paul in romans 6 remember where you came from you were slaves therefore here's my law what is what is god telling israel this is the law of liberty this will keep you away from the things that tie you down and bring you back into bondage that's why god gave israel the law And he gave them the law so that, this is now Exodus 19, right before he gives the law, in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, he says, I have called you to be a holy priesthood. Do you understand? Israel was called to be the representatives of God and his liberty and his salvation to the nations. This was why they were called. They were not just selected to go to heaven. They were selected to lead the world to God's truth and freedom, to be brought back to him like the Garden of Eden. This is why he gave the law. But now, that law was pretty basic. It was going through certain things like, okay, there's a world full of demons which are posing as idols and nations are worshiping them. Therefore, you shall worship me alone. Uh, therefore, you shall not just commit adultery and kill people and lie and honor your father. Like, right? Going through some very basic things. Don't do this and don't do that. Let's get ourselves back in order because we are so lost to sin. Okay, well, the years have rolled by. Israel went into exile. When they went into exile for not keeping God's law, they learned to keep his law. I don't know if you know this, but the Pharisees started in this period before the New Testament. They got so serious about keeping God's law They started leading and influencing the people. They began to study the scripture seriously. Israel was keeping the law when Jesus came. Um, What Jesus is now here saying, when he says, I've not come to abolish that law, but to fulfill it, he's saying it is now time to grow the law up to its next level. No more basic commands. It's now time. See, that law with Moses It made the world a nicer place. But we're not here. Jesus did not come to make the world a nice place. Jesus came to bring us the kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what he's doing is he's saying, yes, that law, and let's now let the law mature. That's what he means by fulfill. We're going to bring the law to its proper conclusion. So, you look at children. Children are not fulfilled. They're in process of becoming adults. Now, children have lots of liberties, but there are also lots of liberties that we withhold from them because they're not ready for them. As children grow, the simple rules we put on them fade away. Why? 
because those rules have been incorporated into who they are now. They're now ready for better rules and better guidelines of how to direct their lives into liberty. There's things that change as we get older. The people of God are maturing. Jesus has come to bring us to the new age. Uh, I, sorry, I always hate using that phrase because of new ageism, but he's, he's come to bring us to the age to come. This is, he's bringing people and preparing them for heaven itself to be the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. And so he's saying it's time to fulfill the law, to mature it, to bring it to its next level. In other words, you were once children, now you're adults. So let's talk about the law in a new way. Um, we have the picture of the first law with Moses on Mount Sinai. Remember, he goes up the mountain and he, he receives it from God and the 12 tribes are there and he teaches the people the law. Do you remember how the Sermon on the Mount opens? Matthew 5 verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is just like Moses going up to receive the law. Jesus is going up now to give the new law. Not new in the sense that it replaces the old, but new in the sense that it brings the old, the foundation of the old to its fruition. Think of Moses like the seed, but now Christ is what the seed was meant to sprout into. That's what he's saying to the people. The seed is sprouting, and I'm here to show you what that looks like. What does it look like? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I always forget blessed are those who mourn. I don't know why. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. This is the Christian Ten Commandments, if you will. You see how these supersede Moses' Ten Commandments? Those simply said, don't do this, and mostly all don't do that, but do this on occasion, like honor your father and mother. The Beatitudes go beyond do's and don'ts. They say, it's now time to become a new creature. So I've come to fulfill, to bring to its mature form, the law and the prophets. So that's why he then says in verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, why? Because the kingdom of heaven is this teaching. Okay, you have to understand, if we don't keep the commands of God, then you're in another kingdom. You're obeying the devil and sin. So if you don't keep these commandments, then you're least. In fact, it's almost like saying, and he'll say this in just a moment, you don't exist in this kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, this is troubling. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds or is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never Enter the kingdom of heaven. And you and I, because you've heard this before and you've known the feeling in the past, your heart drops. Oh, either I have to admit that I am not going to the kingdom of heaven because my righteousness does not exceed religious fanatics. Or second, you, you kind of have this fuzzy like, well, I know that's not really what he means. He means something kind of different than that. But you don't really know how to explain that, right? You guys understand what I'm saying? You feel that? Um, 
yeah, he means what he says, but we also have to remember the context of what he's saying. Does he mean righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees? Yep. Uh-huh. Thank you, guy. <laughs> but you, when you and I hear greater, we're working from a Martin Luther Reformation framework. And what we think when we hear righteousness is things we do that add merit to our standing before God. That's not what he's saying when he says greater. He's not saying you must have more deeds of righteousness. He's saying your righteousness must be of a better sort, a better kind. What does he mean? Well, scribes and Pharisees were the most righteous people in the land. But their righteousness was to the way of Moses' law. Their righteousness was merely that of conforming to the the rules that they were given by God. Fair enough. But see, those rules of Moses could not change the heart. They could only change the behavior. They couldn't make you into a new being. They could only make you mimic something better than the pagan world around you. The scribes and Pharisees were nailing this. But Jesus was saying, okay, but my people, our righteousness will be greater than that because we're going beyond the surface. We're going beyond skin deep. We're going to be righteous in the heart and the actions, but also the heart. I forgot to put it in here, but C.S. Lewis says something to the degree in Mere Christianity um, that this is like when you take a piece of cloth, you can either paint the cloth blue, but the cloth is still beneath, it's still white. And, And when the paint cracks and comes off, it exposes that it's not actually blue. So you can either paint the cloth blue or you can dye it blue and it becomes blue through and through. That's the difference. The Mosaic law taught us how to have right acts. But Jesus is fulfilling that because he's saying, now let's get that deep into who you are. So that, in other words, we don't just do good things like a broken clock is right twice a day. Any Joe can do good deeds twice a day, right? But it takes Christ and being united to him to get that transforming who we are. He's making us new creatures. Behold, the old is passing away. All is becoming new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, yeah? So Christ is the embodiment of this law. He's bringing it to enfleshment he's calling us to a greater righteousness so when we say righteous we mean that you in your thoughts words and actions are aligning yourself with god's nature it it, righteousness is his nature it's his nature to be right he can't be wrong he can't be unjust this is his nature so the righteous person aligns his life with this nature And he's saying that this will be an inside and outside righteousness. So if you have that, then your righteousness is greater than the scribes and Pharisees. So to summarize, what we're saying is Jesus is bringing us the new because it's come to its climax. It's its ultimate intention. He is bringing the law to its fruition. And he's saying no longer is about what you do, but it's also about who you are. The Beatitudes are the, uh, the Ten Commandments fulfilled and grown up. And he's saying now your righteousness is not just the outside, but it's also the inside. This is big stuff. 
He's calling humanity to grow up. It's time not just to make the world a nice place, but to actually embody what the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is a big calling. And this is why this is Matthew's first sermon of Jesus. He, he opens basically his book with these very important words. This is why Christians have loved the Sermon on the Mount forever and ever. It is our manual on how to live as Christ's people. And brothers and sisters, we really ought to know these words. We ought to take this sermon to heart. And I hope that you're, you're, we're grabbing the Beatitudes as we recite them uh, this season every year. Because we really want to know them. To be able to, I mean, if you don't even know what they are, it's hard to grow into them, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So this is big. Now, what, what we just proposed, this is Jesus' thesis. I am, Christians have a greater righteousness than righteous religious people. That's what he's saying. Now, how, how does this look, though? It's a great idea, but how does it look? So that's his thesis, a greater righteousness. Now he's going to show us, and we're going to spend the rest of the night uh, doing a crash course. Jesus gives us a Bible study. The Bible for them was the Old Testament. He's going to open up six passages from the law. Actually, five, because the sixth one is actually from the Jewish tradition. It's not in the law, but it's something that they have spoken out of tradition. So he's going to quote five verses and one traditional statement. And he's going to say, okay, that's what the law taught. Now, is he going to say no to that? No, he's fulfilling it. So he's going to say yes to that law. And I say to you. Now, your translation is going to say but. Uh, It's an unfortunate translation. The Greek word can be and or but. It depends on context. Um, We tend to, uh, translators tend to use but because it sounds like Jesus is pitting himself against the law. But we've just done the work to show he's not pitting himself against it. He's saying yes and. So when you read but, read it as and, okay? The law says this, and I say to you. So he's increasing it, okay? So we'll see that. So he quotes a law, he increases it with yes, and, and then finally, third, he will give us an example of what this looks like. Now, these are not rules like the Ten Commandments. These are examples, they're illustrations, they're patterns. He's giving us examples so that we can see what it looks like to have a greater righteousness, So this is not going to answer every question, and it's not going to give you a list of things to do. It's going to give you a vision for where to direct your heart. Okay? So, example number one. He's going to deal with anger. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Part two, verse 22. Yes, and I say to you, That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Increasing degrees of guilt. See what he's doing. Yeah, the law was good. And we need to be better than just not killing each other. (laughs) Our hearts inside, we must be righteous towards one another. Now, um, his example Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come quickly and offer your gift. So here's a realistic example. You're at church and you're about to offer to God your sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Your body is a living sacrifice and you remember 
Oh, I can't. Oh, Michael Beavers is here tonight? Oh. <laughs> um, okay, hold on there. Are you just doing the external, I go to church and worship God righteousness? Or are you living into the kingdom of heaven and letting that righteousness within? Because that righteousness says, I can't have any anger toward a brother or sister. So you go deal with it now, Jesus says, before you give your offering. This is the greater righteousness he's talking about. Second example is lust. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Yes, and I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You're getting the idea of greater righteousness? Yeah, it's not just about what you do physically. You could have the same attitude and just be too shy or too insecure to do what other aggressive people do physically. If, so now here's the example. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Yeah, dramatic example. You don't have to take that literally. These are teaching methods of making you remember it. Who's not going to forget that Jesus said that, right? Especially if you're in the audience and it takes you by surprise. No, the call is to look... Do what it takes to purify the heart. And this can be as, it might need to be as radical as, you know, throwing this out if that's the issue. Or calling charter and saying, you charge me too much anyways. I'm out. No more Wi-Fi at my house. Um, And especially movies are awful. Movies are a terrible way of leading the heart into desiring and lusting. Um, And by the way, when Jesus is saying greater righteousness, not only it deals with murder, but anger, not only adultery, but lust. He's showing us the law of liberty, isn't he? How many people are enslaved to anger? Oh, they may not murder, but they're enslaved to anger. They're enslaved to lust. Uh, it was, uh, I think it was John Mayer. Might have been Jason Mraz, one of those pop singers. I don't they kind of get those two names mixed up in my head. But one of those guys, um, I read an article years ago, and it said that he could not wake up he would wake up and he would not get out of bed until he viewed at least 300 images every morning. Like that's slavery. Isn't that slavery? Do you want to be tied to that? Like you have to do these things to cope. This is the perfect law of liberty. And Jesus says it's worth it to limit yourself so that you can have greater freedom. You see? Verse 31. Third example is divorce. It's is very much related to lust. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So that was permitted in the law. Here's the certificate. We're divorced. Yes. And so Jesus permits. He does say there's circumstances where maybe this is a good thing. Yes. And I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here also is liberty because he's saying, look, marriages should be a place of thriving and they should not. Here's the thing. We in our current situation are living out this passage. We just don't get to the marriage part. Everyone's living with this agreement that we all have a certificate of divorce in our pocket. It's called living together. And all you have to do is decide we're breaking up. I'm moving out. 
That's the certificate of divorce. It's that easy, right? But here's the thing. That sounds totally like, yeah, freedom. I don't be bound to somebody or do all these legal things or marriages or whatever. It's all much cheaper. I talk to people all the time, all the time, but I've talked to enough people to get the point that these arrangements seem so freeing until you break up. And then I hear the mess people go through. They lose, they have nowhere to, Tyler's gone through this, except he didn't quite go down this path. So it's maybe a bad example, but people no longer have a place to live. They're picking up odd jobs because they're suddenly like, what do I do? They made this strange arrangement, like, we're going to share this car. Well, now whose car is it? It's actually limiting to live in what you think is freedom. And Jesus here is establishing marriage as one of the highest orders for human relationships. And it should be taken so to such that high degree that there's no opt-out clause. You will be more free by learning to live with people forever than you will be by thinking you have the freedom to choose and change around. Now, there's a lot more complex questions about when is okay to divorce. Hey, those are great things to talk about, but we don't have time to go into every single situation. Jesus says there's room for it, but it should never be a quick decision. Number four, oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Yes, and I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. He's naming all the things that people would swear by, all these high and holy things. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, despite us wishing you could. Now, of course, we have, we have dyes today, so, but whatever. Um, let what you say be simply... So here's his example. It's a very short one. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one, based on the footnote of the ESV. It comes from the evil one. Wait, what? So what Jesus is saying is don't swear. Now, we usually say swear means bleep, bleep, bleep. Yeah, don't do that either. But what he's really saying is, don't talk in such a way that you have to qualify the truthfulness of what you're saying with words that say you're telling the truth. Now, cuss words, which Christians abhor, typically fall into that category. I personally don't reject cuss words because somehow hearing that word is so dirty. I reject it based upon this verse, that people use cuss words because their own word isn't good enough. To me, that's a misuse of language. Because actually, all cuss words have a proper use. I don't know if you know that. They just get misused, and that's... Anyways, I don't want to go down this road, and then I'm going to eat my... Whatever. Um, <laughs> the point he's saying is, look, be so genuine, so so true on the inside and out that you just say things the way they are. And brothers and sisters, there is so much liberty to just being completely honest with how you say things. Because the minute you kind of frame it to sound a little better, you have to uphold this. Or the minute you start to like exaggerate and you know you fudge facts a little bit, then you start to say, no, this time I swear, or I promise, or literally, <laughs> a famous phrase in this age, um, to be truthful means like when you just say the fish was this big, <laughs> people know you well enough to know that you literally mean that without saying literally. This is freedom that you don't have to watch your words or choose carefully because you just say, 
Now, some people say, this is how he honestly feels. I'm just going to say it. Uh, well, yeah, good that you're showing us what's really in your heart, and it's clearly not righteous. You know what? Okay, so, okay. Anyways, got to keep moving. Um, for number five, fifth example, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yes, and I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the... Okay, pause. So there you go. So we got to clarify this a little bit. What is this command he's quoting? It was a command that basically limited revenge. So without this law, what revenge looked like is, you you stole my sheep, so I'm going to steal your whole herd of horses. And then the other person, you stole my herd of horses? I'm going to burn your farm. You burn my farm? I'm going to slaughter your village. And like, it just, that's the way of history until Israel put a limit to that. So if they stole your sheep, you take a sheep, nothing more. Okay. So it balances things. But, but now in the age of Christ coming, can we do better than that? He says, yes. And I say to you, why do we even have to get even to begin with? Paul will later in 1 Corinthians 6 say, why not rather be wronged than take your brothers to court? A higher righteousness is willing to go through the examples he's about to say. So his examples are in verse 30, the middle of verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I don't have time to go super deep into this, but, and I think you already know, anytime you go into this passage, there's all kind, this is like one of the passages in the whole Bible I get more opposition to than anywhere else. They're like, well, wait a minute. What about, and hey, hold on. And there's all kinds of hands that go up. It's like, wait, remember, these are not commands. These are illustrations. Are there exceptions? sometimes but is this a general way of living the righteous kingdom of heaven way yeah a warrior for christ will do what christ did and rather be wronged than wrong somebody else sometimes the right thing to do is to be wronged and sometimes the just thing to do is to be treated unjustly sometimes that's the best option and the christian alone has the strength to live like that this is greater righteousness um Verse 43, our last example. Now, this one is not, you're not going to find it in the Bible, but this is, sometimes the Jews took their commentaries on the Bible as much true as scripture sometimes. And so Jesus seems comfortable quoting this one because the people seems to have taken it authoritatively. So verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yes. And I say to you, Love your enemy. <laughs> so let's just rewrite that last part a little bit. <laughs> yes, and I say you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Why? Because he loves his enemies. Uh, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. You don't see him like deciding where the sun comes up. Well, right now I'm sketch about Russia. So Russia is going to live in the dark for a while. Like you don't see that. <laughs> Besides, there are righteous people in Russia anyways, right? He doesn't cherry pick things like that. He just, he is goodness. So we should be the same. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what re- these are his examples. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even tax collectors do the same? The scum of the earth loves people that are like themselves. If only for a hug, right? Um, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? So Christian niceness, he just totally kicked that in the can. Like our calling is not to be niceness or not to be nice. Our calling is to be virtuous, to embody the nature of Christ. This is a higher righteousness. Uh, Then he concludes, and we will comment on this next week. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I will say that he is not saying what you think he's saying. (laughs) Because our understanding of perfect is a little too perfect. (laughs) Um, But we will get into that next week. It's worth its own study. So here we go. We saw his proposition. We've seen his vision for life in the Beatitudes. He's told us that these Beatitudes are, um, these are the greater righteousness. It's the law completely fulfilled. And then we saw examples of what this looks like in the boots on the ground kind of living. So Jesus has gone through the first part of his sermon, the body of his sermon. He's going to follow this up. This will be in two weeks. Um, Because we're doing verse 48 next week. So in two weeks, he'll then show us how to grow in this righteousness. How do we develop greater righteousness, inside, outside righteousness? How do we grow in that? Did you know there's actually things to do? You don't grow in greater righteousness by sitting and just waiting for God to change you. I tried that for too long. It didn't work. Jesus has actually given us things to do to grow in righteousness. This is not salvation by works. This is working out your salvation, if you hear what I'm saying. It's he's given this to us. Now let's let's embody it. So he will give that to us in chapter 6. He's given us three tools for cultivating the fruition of the law, this greater righteousness. And then he'll conclude his sermon with, now how does this growth, how does this interact with the world around us, with the material world and the relational world? And so that's where the sermon's going. And we will take our time on those tools of developing righteousness because they are worth developing. Um, so not every, the rest of this isn't going to, we're not going to cover as much chunk. But I, just, I think you can see, though, why we did it all together. This is a unit and it needed to be seen together. Uh, otherwise, you kind of isolate these passages and it kind of gets interpreted oddly if you isolate it from the big point. So what Jesus is calling us to is a greater righteousness He's, and he's doing this because this greater law is the perfect law of liberty. We have more freedom in Christ. This is the way we're meant to live. You can live like Adam and Eve in Eden, even now this side of heaven. Oh, not the full experience, of course. But you will enjoy, as, you will enjoy the peace and liberty that they got to experience to a degree and in fact some of the early church writers said that we in christ have the opportunity to outgrow adam and eve because they sinned before they got to grow up this is the blessedness we have in christ and this is what he's inviting us into so um in some he's what he's really calling us to do is to develop a second nature that righteousness becomes our nature it may be your nature to sin or to be selfish but for the christian Gradually, our nature becomes what he's describing. And uh, Guy and I were talking about at dinner, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, where he says, a new, com- a new covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will write my law on their hearts. 
I already had this in my sermon notes, so Guy brought it up quite timely at dinner. But this is what Christ is describing. The new and greater law will now be put in, he will, it's going to be put inside of us because he is going to be changing our natures. He will be coming inside of us and making us like him and one with him. So this is, brothers and sisters, let's not leave tonight thinking, okay, I've got to do more. That's not what greater righteousness means. It's not do more. It's not what we do, but it's who we become. We're becoming more like Christ, him in us and us in him, so with so much less distance and gap that it's indistinguishable to the outsider which you are, Christ or you. And that's why persecution, he guaranteed, would come because people persecuted him, they'll persecute you if you look like him. It's, it's this type of second nature that Christ becomes our second nature until he literally becomes, we, sh- we are partakers of the divine nature, like Peter says. So, um, I'll close with what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. He says, now once again, what God cares about is not exactly our actions. He doesn't exactly care about our actions. What he cares about is that we should be ourselves. No, I'm sorry. What he does care about is that we should be creatures of a certain kind of quality a newer creature, a a fulfilled creature, a higher righteousness creature. The kind of creatures he intended us to be, creatures related to himself in a certain way. So remember, it's not exactly your actions that God is, "Mm, do better. It's, I care about these things because I want you to become a certain kind of creature. I want you to be living in the kingdom of heaven even now. I want you to embody who I am even now. So little by little, we make progress. Yes, we're still going to sin, but we turn from those and we can, and, and gradually we begin to do that less and less and less often. This is what he's calling us to. He wants to write his perfect law on our hearts so that we don't have to pull out a list. <laughs> That's not what he's calling us to anymore. He's calling us to this vision of life, to be so one with him that we walk in this vision of life. Hmm. So yes, he wants us to take his loss seriously. Because it gives us liberty.